This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show sleep expert Pat Byrne. Now, Pat began his career journey working in the world of health and safety, and it was a tragic accident that killed his young nephew that led him into researching the negative impacts of sleep deprivation in the workplace. So we discuss a host of topics, from some of the asbestos-related death cases that he worked on, sleep deprivation in the first responder community, his work with high-level athletes, including the NHL, optimizing sleep, the pros and cons of wearables, sleep meds, the incredible potential for AI in the medical community, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Pat Byrne. Enjoy. Well, Pat, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. My pleasure. 
So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? I'm I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. I said this morning, I just glanced at my cam, my uh, my um, clock because I realize it's my afternoon now, but it's your morning still, so we're yes, good. Yes, it is. It's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. You have an incredible journey. It's obviously very pertinent to a lot of people that are listening, but let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I was actually born in a little farm community um, outside of Vancouver called Langley. Um, and my father is a building contractor. He's a carpenter. So we moved all over. We moved to another town up north, about four hour drive away called Kamloops, lived there for a few years. And my parents moved to a town called Fort Nelson, which is in uh, very northern British Columbia. It's about a thousand miles north of uh, Vancouver, town of about 1500 people. So I grew up there, um, never saw television, had one radio station, (laughs) Um, you know, literally a three room school, elementary school with no uh, running water. We had an outdoor toilet. Um, those those kinds of things. That was how I, I grew up. Um, and then eventually my parents moved back to Langley and worked for my parents' business. And so I have a, a younger brother, uh, an older sister and two younger sisters. So there are five of us um, spread all over the world these days. Um, uh, and then I, so I, after I graduated from high school, I worked in construction for a few years, um, uh, fell off a roof, <laughs> hurt my back and broke my hand, decided construction probably wasn't for me, Um, went to university um, and studied uh, chemistry and biology and got undergraduate degrees in both of those from Western Washington University and then did a master's in biochem. And so I moved back to, uh, that was in Washington State, and I moved back to um, uh, Canada and to British Columbia looking for work. And uh, ended up at the what's called the Workers' Comp Board, which um, it's it's sort of a, it's a combination of OSHA and workers' compensation under one roof in British Columbia. Um, and so I started there. Actually, I started as a file clerk, but within a couple months, I was employed as a as an inspector. So I worked a lot in sort of what's called occupational hygiene, which is uh, chemical safety. And I spent um, probably eight years traveling all over the province, inspecting big everything from hospitals to pulp mills to oil refineries to factories, um, looking for you know, chemical exposures um, and uh, enforcing the, the regulations. Then I got involved with, uh, invited to be involved by our head uh, general counsel to help run uh, what's called asbestos litigation. So we were suing asbestos manufacturers for all the injuries that they had caused <clears throat> um, workers, and you know, including deaths and asbestosis and lung cancers. So I worked on that project for four years all over North America. A lot of, a lot of the work was done in South Carolina um, and, and in Texas. And then uh, when that project was over, we got settlement mechanisms with the asbestos companies. Um, I uh, was appointed to what's called the appeal division, which is um, sort of in American terms is really uh, it's an administrative law court. So it was the, uh, you know, the senior appeal division of the administrative law courts, um, uh, largely because of they had a lot of occupational disease cases. And looking at, you know, causation factors, they had a factory, for example, that had 35 bladder cancer cases out of one factory. 
And so they needed somebody there to look at causation and what, you know, which ones are work-related and which ones are not work-related. So they needed somebody with a science background. Um, then I went to, they sent me to uh, law school and graduate, but I, I took nice school classes and, and, you know, enough to, to be able to talk to lawyers in my job. And, and I sat there on the bench for uh, nine years hearing all of these occupational disease cases. Um, then I decided I'd been there 21 years, decided to retire from that and got involved in um, uh, occupational health consulting. But part of that just had before I had left the appeal division, uh, I had a young nephew who um, was a local basketball star. In fact, his his job or his his challenge in high school was that he had to guard Steve Nash. That's no, um, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Um, and so Steve went off university into great NBA career, and and my nephew went off and studied forestry. Um, and uh, within a few months after him starting work, he was working very long hours, you know, 12, 14 hour shifts, um, driving home uh, one night, Friday night, um, fell asleep, drove his car off a cliff and died. And that sort of really changed my emphasis around health and safety. I mean, at that time, I was the Canadian director on what's called the, the International Board. So it was an uh, NGO of um, the World Health Organization. And I talked to my colleagues around the world, and literally no one was dealing with fatigue as a health and safety issue. And so I just started that journey. I started looking around, realizing nobody was actually doing it. And I started contacting universities um, and um, uh, military, made some contacts to the U.S. military, and particularly with a guy named Steve Hirsch at that time, who was a, Pen a Pentagon medical officer who had done a lot of research in this area, and John Caldwell, who was the Air Force uh, head of the U.S. Air Force Sleep and Fatigue Countermeasures Program. And so... What I learned, it's and, and what I learned in occupational hygiene is that if you want to measure asbestos, you want to measure noise, or you want to um, uh, mitigate the risk from those, you have to be able to measure it. Right? And so there was no easy way to measure sleep and fatigue in the workplace. Um, but what I did figure out was that you could take these old sleep watches they were using in research, and you could take the uh, software that they were using in the Air Force and the Army to, to uh, measure fatigue in the, in the pilots and in the uh, Army personnel, and marry the two together and create a technology where a wristwatch where you can actually measure fatigue. Um, and so I started a company called uh, Fatigue Science. We developed the very first FDA um, approved sleep and fatigue watch way before Fitbit, way before all of these things. And it's still used. It's used mostly in uh, military. It's very robust. You can run a tank over them almost and they run, but they weren't, they weren't a consumer model and they're, they're expensive to do that. I retired from there probably six years ago. Um, and uh, a lot of my work now is involved with uh, sports uh, first responders. I do a lot of education work around um trying to help organizations both both structurally to deal with health and safety issue or health and safety and uh, fatigue and sleep issues, but certainly individuals as well. Work with a lot of individual uh, uh, professional sports athletes, uh, both in, you know, the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, right, right across the, the spectrum. Um, the challenge for professional athletes is they don't, they don't want um, their team to know they have sleep issues. And because they they don't get played, I worked with a uh, um, 
major league baseball player who was a first round draft pick. And the team sent him over to me because he had sleep issues. And we put him through a bunch of tests and did figure out he had sleep apnea. They traded him the next day. So I this yeah, that was a lesson to me saying, I, I'm not going to deal with teams where they're going to mistreat people who have sleep disorders. So anyways, that's, that's, that's where I'm at now. So, and I, a few years ago, I wrote a book called um, Inconvenient Sleep, How Teams Win and Lose. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a bad read. <laughs> no, well, firstly, thank you for walking us through. I want to go way, way back and then walk through because there's so many areas that are so pertinent to, you know, what I've seen in my f- career in the fire service and what I'm seeing from the outside looking in now, speaking to experts, especially in the sleep medicine world like yourself. Um, very first question going all the way back. I'm one of five. I grew up on a farm. So I wouldn't say I was having to use the bathroom outside like I heard you talking to uh, Michael Gervais about. Um, but with that being your baseline, what did that do as far as the perspective that you had on the world as you moved back to, you know, one would, would argue more modern technologies again? I think, I mean, again, that was in the 60s. So there wasn't tons of new technology, but certain in television. television. And you have, a, I think, a different perspective of, of how it's used and you don't grow up, it's not part of your DNA. You look at it as a sort of an inanimate object. Um, my view of the world really was, particularly if you go in northern Canada in the wintertime, it's dark, except for maybe four hours of, of uh, a little bit of brightness. But what you see are literally billions and billions and billions of stars. And you see how huge the universe really is. And so that was my view of the world, is that we were a really small part of this huge, huge universe. And so I I tried to take a a bigger view of technology rather than getting into going down the rabbit hole and getting into the details of how it's used and worry about those things. It was going, how does this fit into the bigger scheme of life? I feel like we've done a polar opposite of your upbringing now where we don't even look up from our phones anymore to even see maybe the few scars that are, you know, seen through the the light pollution that we have in most of our suburban and urban areas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you talk about light pollution. I did some work at uh, Stanford uh, a few years ago with uh, Dr. Maurice O'Hayan, who's created some incredible um, uh, AI technology for diagnosing mental health and sleep disorders and and things. But he he did a, a study looking at sa- um, uh, illumination from satellites, showing um, uh, you know that in areas where they had high high lights in the cities, it was like they had poor sleep. Yeah, and it, may, it makes perfect sense, and that's the thing. Yeah, I think yeah. of six and a half years of talking to experts. You can reverse engineer if we lived as our great grandparents did. You would probably solve eighty to ninety percent of our mental and physical health problems. Oh, absolutely! You know, we've evolved certainly in the last hundred years from you know being large, not largely agrarian, but largely a, a daylight society to a twenty-four hour society. And, you know, and I think that's, and what happens is we end up fighting our biology. So we are what, what um, uh, scientists like to call diurnal animals. So we're biologically programmed in our DNA to be awake in the daytime and to sleep at night, right? We're not uh, like owls and raccoons that are diurnal or nocturnal animals. And so people tend to forget, you know, that they're really fighting their biology when they're staying awake at night. 
Um, and so what's happened with, particularly with first responders, and, and now it's really grown into a whole lot of other uh, professions as well, is that their employer forces them to uh, fight their biology. Right. I mean, I did a lot of work in Western Australia in the outback in the iron ore mines, and they work seven 12-hour days followed by seven 12-hour nights, and then they get a week off. And the week off is they have to fly in and fly out. So there's two days of that are flying in, flying out, and five days at home with their family trying to actually get some sleep. Um, so obviously there are you know, a lot of issues around that. But when I, we talked to the mine management, we said, well, we understand that there are certain, certain occupations within the mine. It's a, it's a, uh, it has to be run 24-7. You can't shut it down. But you, do you really need everybody in the entire mine to work 24-7 or, or to, be, to work night shift? You have engineers who are designing things at the mine. They don't need to work at night. Like, why would you do that? And their answer was, we want to be fair to everybody. So we don't want to have some people that get sleep at night and some people have to work at night. And I said, you know, that's kind of, I, I said, from my health and safety background, that's kind of, that, don't be offended, but I said, that's a stupid approach. <laughs> it's like, it's like saying some workers within our factory have to get exposed to asbestos. So let's just expose everybody to asbestos <laughs> so that it'll be fair. <laughs> well, that's what happens in our fire stations. And this was maddening because my last place actually secured budget to redo their toning system. So the alert system. And I had seen a great device where you have these, these kind of cubicles where we all sleep, but this one was a little box and it had a speaker and an LED strip and it would just wake you up. And so if you slept kind of roughly in the dorm where your vehicle was, so, you know, the two guys on the ambulance here, the four people on the, the engine, then after a few weeks, you got used to it, you would wake up the next morning and be like, oh, we had a great sleep. And the people next to you were like, well, I'm glad you did. We were up four times. But that was the <laughs> point is that you don't wake everyone up. And they went to the polar opposite, still alerted everyone and then put LED strips in the the bunk that would illuminate the whole bunk saying this is where this one person's call is so it was exactly what you're talking about and i was pulling my hair out because the previous dispatch chief had agreed that's a phenomenal idea he ends up getting fired and then you know i don't know if it was to spite him or what it was but this is this is the thing that we face in the fire service you're not that important to you know, like the chiefs to monitor their radios, you don't need to be awake. Awake the, the big boys and girls that you've employed to do this job that need to go and let everyone else sleep. You know, you're absolutely right. And and I think the foundational issue really is is ignorance. And I see that across uh, professional sports. I see it across industry. I see it in, in uh, with first responders is that the senior people who are making decisions, and this goes right down to, you know, to the guys with the boots on the ground, they don't are not given foundational sleep and fatigue training. And so, I mean, I've dealt with, um, you know, some ownership and very senior people in professional sports that are just, completely ignorant about the effects of 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 sleep on uh, on uh, on performance and one of the things I did so um, I ended up working with so in the National Hockey League with the Vancouver Canucks they brought me in I worked there for seven seasons and the very first thing that we did was we had um, the ownership all the front office all of the coaches all of the training staff and all of the players in one room at the same time 
And I gave them an hour and a half lecture on sleep and fatigue and what we were going to do for the team so that everybody got the same training. Everybody could understand what's going on. And it ran really smoothly. And I've taken that approach to industry as well. I won't go into an industry and train guys with boots on the ground about sleep and fatigue unless their bosses are there or their bosses get separate training so that they understand the issues. And the problem is, no, the issue is that um, sleep in fatigue is fairly new with respect to science. Sleep science is new. And so people, even with medical doctors, most of the medical uh, general practitioners get maybe three or four hours of sleep training in a four-year program. It's just evolved. And so you have a lot of ignorant people making ignorant decisions because they don't have basic training. And it's like trying to run an army without putting people through basic training. <laughs> you know, ain't gonna, <laughs> nothing good's going to come of that, right? And so that's my emphasis now and certainly in my career is to try to educate organizations and try to educate workers and uh, people like yourself so that everybody really understands. You don't have to go on Google and look all, and try to figure out what's real and what's not real. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wrote wrote my book was, although it's more sports emphasized, is to show how much fake stuff there is out there, right? And and uh, and and how to be discerning about what what research is real and what's not real. Um, and so, I, but I so I think that's sort of the, the the fundamental issue as as we learn about sleep and fatigue. I mean, everything we now know about sports and sleep, we've learned in the last decade. Well, and you talked about, you know, it may not be the same because it's sports. Well, this is the problem with the fire service. We have no research in sleep. So the very, you know, I would say arguably the most overworked, underslept profession on the planet refuses to do research on the one thing that's the amplifier for their mental health problems, for their cancer, their obesity, their, I mean, you name it, the things that we all die from. And there's, they just refuse. They'll, they'll, they'll do research on this nozzle or, you know, this kind of fan, but the actual things that are behind so many of our funerals, there isn't. So we have to turn to the military and the sporting community to make parallels because I get told this all the time. Well, where's the research? Well, firstly, it's common sense. But secondly, if you really need to prove that being awake every third day for 10, 20 or 30 years is not good for you, here's the Navy, the Air Force, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why these conversations are so important. Right. Yeah. So, a couple of points there. So one of the things I learned when I was with the in the asbestos litigation is, uh, particularly with the asbestos companies, they would say, oh, yeah, we know asbestos causes cancer in minors, but we don't know whether it causes cancer in uh, carpenters or in welders because there, there's no research done on that. Right. And then the research gets done and say, yeah, well, we know now that the carpenters are at risk from asbestos, they go, yeah, but you haven't really shown that it affects office workers with asbestos in it. Right. And so that's really, quite frankly, again, a stupid argument, because the, the, the fact is, asbestos is a risk and it causes cancer, much like smoking or anything else. And so it doesn't matter. The profession is irrelevant. Right? It's the risk that you're looking at. And there's tons and tons and tons of research around uh, risks to anybody who fights their biology when you're awake at night. 
one of the great researchers in this area is from Washington State University, Brian Vila, who's uh, since now retired. He's, uh, I think his book's called, he's written a number of books. One of the early ones was called A Tired Cop. So he's an ex-police officer, PhD, who's done a lot, a lot of research around the effects of sleep on on, uh, police officers and decision-making. And uh, he's, and what he's shown is that when police officers are tired coming off 12 hour shifts at, at the end of those shifts that they make very poor decisions. Um, they, they, you know, literally they shoot babies. Like they, they just, you know, it's, or, or they freeze and, and get, and get themselves shot. And so the, the decision-making around, around sleep for police officers is very, very well studied. And, and, and they're humans. There's, there's no, the only difference between police officers and other first responders is the uniform they put on. You know, if, you know, if, 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 if a firefighter put on a pilot's outfit and, and worked the same shift, the planes would crash. <laughs> well, the other thing is the firefighters work a lot more sleepless days than a police officer does because usually a police officer's week is still going to be 40 hours. It's 12s, which is a horrendous, but an average firefighter in the US is a 56 hour work week. You add the mandatories because they're so understaffed. A lot of them, you know, not every single week, but a lot of weeks they'll work now 80 hours. So this is the thing. We've studied, we've studied professions that work less than us, but we still won't even apply that, even though we work sometimes double what some of these professions work. Right. So my whole argument around that is, 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 uh, is not to sort of be isolated in the sense of, you know, treat firefighters and first responders as just humans. Right. These are humans who are who are up against disc risk. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, if you fall off a 40-story building, it doesn't matter what uniform you're going to wear. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, look, the carpenters are dying. Yeah, but the firefighters, we don't know about the firefighters yet. Let's push some off and see what happens. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's the risk you need to deal with. It's not the uniform, right? Absolutely. Well, I want to get to some of the the litigation side, and then walk you through your journey through, you know, from from that tragedy through to your exposure to the sleep world. One of the epiphanies that I had recently was, and it was there was a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast called Sad Guru, and I forget what comment was made, but it was something like what Joe had said. Well, you know, most people are good, and they think he said you know something like oh the the drug companies or whatever, which there's an element of truth in some of the the things that they produce and the impact they've had on our country. But he said, well, they're he said they're hurting too, or something like that, or they need kindness too. And I realized that when we look at mental ill health, we look at school shooters, we look at the addiction process, and you know prostitution and some of these areas that have led a preschool giggling child to some of these wayward paths. But what we don't think about is some of these corrupt politicians, some of these heads of these tobacco companies, asbestos companies. How, you kind of, how do they sleep at night? And I, my, my you know, hypothesis is, well, maybe that's the mental ill health being projected in that greed. So with your exposure to some of these companies where clearly there was no argument, their products were killing a lot of people and they were making a lot of money from it, did you have any kind of experiences to the kind of people and was there almost like a mental ill health component to some of those individuals too or am i way off Mm. Uh, that's a great question i mean i don't know the answer to that i mean we when we sued these companies we sued them as corporations and of course we had all their you know internal emails and things that went on and they were just making uh decisions to make money so it didn't it didn't matter 
right? They knew, for example, you know, it turned, they knew in the 20s and 30s that asbestos was causing uh, huge amounts of injuries. And they just, it, they just chose to ignore it, hoping it would go away. And so it was about, it was about solely business decisions to make money and, and to preserve their, their company. I mean, if you think about it, if you're an asbestos company and all you do is make asbestos products and all of a sudden people know that it causes lung cancer and asbestosis and other things, your business is gone. Right. And so, you know, as a board of directors, they're there to preserve the company. And so they're not there to look after the workers. That's the union's job. <laughs> right. So what about the when you look and kind of reverse engineer the creation of something, was there and I'll give you an example. I just had a Rob Ballot on probably about a year ago now, and he's the the real lawyer from the the film Dark Waters. So it was the DuPont chemicals that were poisoning the village, the same chemicals that are actually in our firefighter gear and our firefighter foams. Um, but you know, it seems like a lot of times there is a, a knowledge early on, even almost in the research process, that these are harmful. And yet they still release them. So you're not even talking about protecting a well-established business by that point. You know, Oxy, OxyContin is another perfect example. So what were you seeing? Was there, was there acknowledgement, acknowledgement of these issues early, early on in the timeline of a lot of these companies? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and part of it is, um, how the government, once the government sort of found out and regulators are always way, way behind the curve is, and what they did with asbestos was to say, well, you know, let's just limit the exposure to people. It's not like, let's get rid of this product. It's like, let's let people get exposed, but let's just tell them that a little bit won't hurt them. Right. And asbestos went along. I mean, you could, you can follow the, um, the regulatory schemes across North America about how they regulated asbestos, you know, and then it was like, well, you can get exposed to, you know, 5 million particles per square, per square foot or whatever. Right. And, and then went down and down and down and down and down. And now they realize, well, really no exposure is, is, is healthy. Right? But it's, it's this combination of, you know, industry trying to preserve their products. And the government playing along a little bit because the research isn't there and saying, okay, well, you can still use these dangerous things, but we'll just limit how much people can get exposed to it. Yeah, I know my last place, um, they did a big asbestos mitigation. If I've got my story right, and I don't, I don't want to say where it was because I want to make sure my facts are right, but there was a ma massive as asbestos mitigation from this large theme park. Um, that was put into this area. I think that ended up catching fire. And this is way before I worked for them. And from what I understand, as one of my firefighter partners who retired, you know, when I was there, so that was the difference in our, our time in that department. He'd been hired on. And I think all of his classmates were on that fire. And I think there was only like two or three of them left from that class that survived. And this was not a department that usually fought fire. This was you know they're so well sprinkled and so safe that it was just a medical cause that we went on which is why i think the sleep deprivation is another huge contributor because they weren't exposed to carcinogens normally but that one asbestos fire they always talked historically about how they thought that was the root of so many of the cancers that killed their friends right now I, it's very interesting because when i worked in the appeal division where we we saw these cases so you would often have widows would coming who filed filed appeals have been in the system for a few years saying i think my husband's or my my wife or my partner's 
uh, cancer was caused from their work. And so the the uh, the insurance companies have found different ways. Whether they're go- like in Canada, they're government regulated, so it's a, basically the workers' comp systems. They deal with it in different ways. And so p- part of what they how we dealt with it in British Columbia was we said, if you have you get mesothelioma, which is uh, a particular kind of cancer in the, in the lungs, and you've had any exposure to asbestos in your career, then it's caused from your work. Right. Um, but what's happened is where you have to litigate it, go to court, it's a whole different uh, set of standards, and it, force, and it forces widows and unions to try to prove that their exposure was cost from work. It's very difficult, very difficult proposition. Um, and so they end up doing, a, and what they did in the States was, and I worked with uh, Ron Motley and uh, a huge firm out of South Carolina that really started all the asbestos litigation. And they had these, they looked at, at not just one individual, but they looked at thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of workers and filed lawsuits with thousands of plaintiffs. So that the picture, you could see the clear picture that out of all of these thousands of people, look at all the disease that's there. It's not just one guy fighting the companies, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of workers fighting together. And they were very successful in in uh, in doing that. Well, I think this is the problem. It's firstly, the American fire service is so fragmented. And I don't know if you've been, you've discovered that in your your time down here or up there, but um, certainly down here, it's, it's, it's very fragmented. You know, counties and cities don't talk to each other sometimes and it's it's ridiculous. But then you have the states as well. So some states will have a cancer presumption, but even for only certain things. Like I just had a guest on who had breast cancer, career female firefighter. But because it was diagnosed when she hit 40, they were like, well, it doesn't fit the criteria now. Well, she hadn't slept every third day for, you know, whatever. She'd been exposed to all these things. And then I hear these horror stories, and it's so nauseating of responders that actually, you know, are in a state that has presumption and the insurance companies will just fight it. And it's been it's been said from people within circles that they've heard people say, oh, no, we just keep fighting it because they'll die before they'll ever get a penny, which yeah. is nauseating. Yeah, you know, happens all the time. <clears throat> and yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's sad. And, and I mean, part of it is this sort of acceleration of of uh, we're, we're talking about sleep and fatigue and, and those kinds of things is is more and more people are working longer and longer hours. And there's less and less research actually going on being funded to to look at those kinds of issues. And there are probably the biggest sleep and fatigue research lab in in the world is in um is in washington state university and uh they've got all these simulation labs they do you know, quite frankly really amazing work around there but they're you know one small group the u.s military does a lot of research um and it's hard to get you know the, the research out of that and a lot of research around sleep and fatigue is scattered everywhere and you find it in ergonomics journals, you find it in all kinds of things all over the world. And so it's really hard to kind of pull a lot of those pieces together. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, um, one of the things that um, bothers me a little bit about all the discussion around sleep and fatigue is that people tend to, to treat poor sleep as a disease. And poor sleep is not a disease. Poor sleep is a symptom. And it's a symptom of many different things. It's a symptom of mental health issues. It's a symptom of uh, 
work scheduling. It's a symptom of uh, other biological diseases um, and so uh, lifestyle issues. And so what's happened is um, they don't really, it's very difficult when somebody has a, a, sleep, a sleep issue to be able to figure out what the cause of that is. Right. Is it is it mental health or, or is it a combination of all of these things? I've worked with uh, minors in Australia who are obese, who have sleep apnea, who work terrible, terrible work schedules, have terrible diets. Um, so and and they're not sleeping and they're at high risk of having a heart attack. And so what's the cause of that? everything <laughs> yeah well it's a vicious circle isn't it because once you start you know, your hormones start getting disrupted now you're creating a less healthy human and we're told we'll just sleep on your days off well as you just pointed out when i was 21 i probably could but now i'm 35 and i've been on shifts for 15 years and my you know like you said i've, I've gained weight and now need a sleep app my sleep quality is going to be so much worse because of the breakdown from my sleep deprivation Right. And I think the missing component of all of this is education, really educating early on uh, firefighters, first responders about sleep and fatigue. So they understand how their own body even works. When I deal with professional athletes that on, on teams, I, I said, the people you need to educate are the junior, the players on the junior teams, because they need to be educated before they get here. You know, for me, try to change the sleep habits of a guy that's making $10 million a year and got there doing what he was doing he isn't going to change very much. He's not going to listen to me, right? But it's the young guys and the young women who, who are coming up who really need to be taught that. It's not taught in schools. They teach nutrition in school. They teach visual education in school. They teach cooking in school. They, they don't teach anything about sleep. And so that's, I think that that's a, there's a huge gap in our society around that issue. No, absolutely. I want to get into that because I think the front door is really where we, we, you know, force change. But you talked about the tragedy that really opened your eyes to the sleep deprivation element. I have had so many guests from the US military when it comes to the sleep research side, because that is, you know, a, a wealth of information that I can draw on because my own industry that refuses to really put any money in that whatsoever. Um, and Alison Brager is from the, the US Army. She, told me that they were, I think it was, was it Fort Bragg? It was one of the forts anyway, where they were doing some of the, I believe it was a special forces selection. So obviously yeah. the candidates are staying up all night. Therefore, a lot of the cadre are up in these weird hours. And it was up in somewhere that was, I think it was North Carolina, so somewhat mountainous. And they were literally having people drive off the side of the mountain, the instructors, because they were so fatigued. So talk to me about you know, you the impact that losing your nephew had, and then let's walk through your journey into, you know, really even the the front door of sleep research where it was when you entered, and then where we are today. Sure, and just to back up a little bit, it's interesting you mentioned Fort Bragg. I actually did a, a fair bit of uh, teaching there around sleep and fatigue issues, and also at uh, Fort Detrick with the the U.S. Army Medical Medical Corps there. And one of the things that they changed. And was in special forces, they had this notion that you can actually uh, sleep harden people. So you can teach people to be awake long hours and survive. Um, they finally realized you can't. Right. And so they actually gave up on that, that whole concept and are now actually basically teaching people how, how to get good sleep when they can't. 
right? It's a completely different mindset. But the old mindset, we'll just harden these people. We'll teach them how, how to stay awake. It doesn't work, right? Um, so you certainly in my, in my journey with my, my nephew, and he was like 22 years old, um, and, and he, you know, he didn't even drink coffee, what didn't drink alcohol, didn't drink coffee, just that, you know, the good kid, good basketball um, player. In fact, he had, um, when Steve Nash was uh, playing in the in, uh, uh, US, my nephew was, uh, uh, he created uh, basketball programs in his community for little kids. And they actually named a sports court for him, which is still active today, basketball court for, for little kids, which is the first time they ever did it for a 22 year old kid it was, uh, so he had a, you know, he had a, uh, was a great kid, had a, um, uh, um, you know, had a lot of involvement in the community as well. But, and, and so, I mean, I was his, not only his, his uncle, but his, uh, I was his um, godfather as well. And, and so it has, I mean, it's how you have this emotional feeling, obviously when somebody dies too close and shock for somebody young, you know, not expected. But then you, you know, sit back and so, you know, why was he awake for so long? Like, and and one of the things that I learned after a while is that falling asleep is actually fairly unusual around around uh, sleep issues it, because there's this huge um, period of time before you fall asleep where your faculties are are um, aren't aren't up to par. Right. It's not sleep's not an on off switch. You're not awake, you're asleep. There's this huge period of time. And then even when you wake up and get sleep inertia. So we learned it around those kinds of things. And one of the other sort of analogies I learned around this is, is we probably all played this little game as a kid sit around and all hold our breath. See who could hold their breath the longest. Everybody, and finally, everybody starts breathing. And what's happening there is your brain allows you to control your sleep or your, uh, your, your uh, breath, which is actually a good thing in sports and other things you can control. But it, your brain will only allow you to control it consciously for a period of time. And when you get to a point where there's not enough oxygen in your brain, your brain just takes over and says, sorry, you're being stupid. You need to breathe. And it'll force you to breathe. And sleep is exactly the same way. You know, your brain will allow you to stay awake. And some of that may be, you know, sort of a survival thing, but allow you to stay awake for even long periods of time. But you'll reach a point where your brain goes, sorry, I need to shut down. We need some repair work here. And it'll put you to sleep no matter what you're doing, whether you're watching television or flying a plane or whatever you're doing, it'll put you to sleep. And so we can control um, certain aspects of our, uh, of our sleep, but you pay a price for it. Once you start fighting that, you pay a health price for it, you pay a safety price for it, and you pay a performance price for it. And all of those kinds of prices depend on what uniform you're wearing, right? If you're super sleep deprived and you're watching television, you fall asleep, there's probably not too much harm. But if you're um, having to make decisions about people's lives or you're flying a plane or driving a train, there's big consequences. And so we tend to see um, the, the kind of uh, things you see on the news are the big accidents. You don't see all the small accidents. Right? You don't, you know, and so because it doesn't involve a lot of people. And that's been a real challenge for accident, investigation, accident investigators to look at how much, whether, what, what component of an accident was actually uh, associated with sleep. We had an accident here. Literally, I can walk. I can walk there in five minutes from my house, um, where a small plane crashed, 
trying to land at the airport. And it had taken off, it had flown out, and it had uh, was losing oil. And it tried to circle back and couldn't quite make it to the airport and crashed. And so they had this big investigation. And all of it was about firefighting, actually, on the, on the plane and, and fire suppression and the materials. The real cause of the accident, if you read the report, was that the maintenance guy who changed the oil on the plane on night shift had uh, cross-threaded the oil cap. And his supervisor didn't even pick it up, who's supposed to check on those things. And it went off. And of course, the oil leaked off. So what they should have been looking at was the, the sleep history of the guy who made the, who made the poor decision, the mechanic who made the poor decision, and they didn't do it. They didn't even look at it. They ignored it. And that's very true. I've seen that with police officers and car accidents and others, is unless you fall asleep, they don't want to know about it. Well, just it's to- just too... Go ahead. I'm sorry, just jump in because I wanted to ask you that. So we have what's called line of duty deaths. And a lot of times, you know, someone will fall from the aerial, a, a 110-foot ladder, or there'll be very commonly an intersection crash. You know, someone will go through. And more recently, when I'm asking some of these sleep medicine experts, um, they talk about micro-sleeps. So every time this has been investigated, oh, they made a mistake, they should have stopped, or, you know, oh, they just fell, or they just got lost in the fire. The more I learn about this side, the more I question, and the same would be attached to the gray area offer involved shootings. We have the ones where we completely screw up. That's, you know, that's not even in, in contention. We have the ones where it's a justified shoot, also not in contention. But the kid that reaches for his driver's license and he thinks he's going for a gun you know the all these ones that we these mistakes how often have we brought in sleep deprivation into this conversation rarely right and that's one of the things i like the research done that brian vile has done um i said on washington state university it's v-i-l-a um he's got some great books um some great research in that area and it's still being continued even though he's 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 retired and they don't because it's too hard one of the things that I've used in accident investigations is is a U.S. Air Force and U.S. Army technology uh, software, where uh, it's called it's a couple different names. One's called SAFTE, which is our fast of fatigue avoidance scheduling tool. So what it is, it's you put in a sleep history of someone for the previous at least seventy two hours, and it will tell you pretty accurately the range of that person's reaction time. And it's used now by virtually every airline in North America is built into their scheduling systems to try to make sure that the pilots are getting the sleep that they need. And if the schedules are, t- are too fatiguing, it'll, it'll, it'll kick them out. But I've used that technology um, a lot. So I can tell you, for example, um, if, if, if there's a, uh, that kind of incident, for example, you're talking about with so, uh, somebody gets shot, you go back and look at this, the 72 hour or longer sleep history of that person. And I can tell you pretty accurately what range, how much change in their reaction time was there. So I, I can tell, you know, if they've lost 50% of their reaction time or 25% of their reaction time. And there's a, the, the Federal Railroad Administration has done some really, really good research showing with that software, showing uh, at what point are, are accidents, which, which, at what point can you now attribute that to an accident? So the technology is there. It's just not widely used. So we have one of the shifts. I think we talked about it on the phone a while ago. So one of the things maddening to me is the 56-hour work week, they'll 
play around with it. So rather than do 2448, which is, you know, we have three platoons, three shifts, A, B, and C. So that means that I'm on, then B is on, then C is on, then I come back again. And so now they'll be like, oh, well, actually, let's do a 4896. So now I work 48 hours without sleep, but then I get four days off spinning the Rubik's Cube, but the Rubik's Cube is never smaller. And this is the problem is that there's no no conversation at all. Like, why are we working our responders the amount of hours per week? Why are we not giving them more time off in between shifts to allow them to get as close to, you know, normal again as we can? Talk to me about, you know, I know, I know we're kind of, you know, just spitballing a little bit, but mm. when we hear about sleep deprivation, I hear the same statistic. 24 hours without sleep is like blood alcohol 0.1. Mm-hmm which is a great stat, but I'm assuming those people in those studies had slept well prior to that. Now, they were talking about men and women that haven't slept for 20, 30 years. What cognitively would be the decline if you happen to kind of punch in the numbers? If someone had been on a 48-hour shift, a lot of our emergent calls happen at night, whether it's bad car crashes, fires, etc. So let's say 40 hours, 42 hours into a 48-hour shift with no sleep. What would be the 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 increase in likelihood for mistakes in the meds oh, that we push or huge. yeah huge i'd have to put it through the software to give you an, an exact number but the technology exists and and so what you do is you put in the sleep history and it's not just the sleep duration but it's sleep quality and so often sleep quality is more important than sleep duration and so, and that's so one of the things we did with that sleep watch that I, that I invented, created was to import that software into the sleep. So you could wear a watch, much like a Fitbit or anything, but it also puts it through that software and it'll give you a real time fatigue score. And it'll tell you, you can look at the watch. They're available, commercially available today. You can look at it and it'll tell you um, not only what your fatigue score is, but if you don't get any more sleep, it'll tell you where you hit the point where you're going to, you're at a serious accident risk. The problem with industry using that technology is, is particularly in your area, what do you do with somebody who's mid shift and they're saying, you know, in two hours, you're just way too tired. To be doing anything, you're going. You're, you're at a high risk of an accident. So um, I just I've had a lot of discussions with Brian Vell over this. Him and I used to travel literally all over the world. We lectured together in Malaysia and all over North America. Is is insurance liability? Employers don't want to know, even though the technology exists to measure this in real time and to help people. They don't want to know because if they know, they have to take action. And they're short-staffed, and they don't want to take action, and it's one more thing on their plate. So they'd rather be like the monkeys with the hands over the eyes and the ears and the mouth and do nothing um, and and download all of the responsibility to the individuals. And that's one of the discussions we had around police officers, particularly in L.A., um, that Brian had worked with, is they saying, we don't mind if you use these watches, but it's your responsibility. We don't want to know what the results are. So I want to put something to you. A person, especially a person who spends certain days of the week in a religious building and then comes out with goodness in their heart, you would assume that they would be deeply invested in the well-being of their people. Let's say hypothetically that isn't enough in the world. It is for me, but a lot of people that I've met (laughs) that run these organizations, that doesn't seem to be enough, which blows my mind. But anyway, that aside, um, because 
firefighter funerals is what made me start this podcast. That's how horrendous I think that it is to lose someone. So the other side is I keep hearing people, well, you got to show the financial savings. You have such a unique perspective in all these litigations. The shortcuts that were made at the expense of the health and even the lives of the employees. Talk to me about if is that a false um, economy? And if so, is it actually better to invest in your people properly? Would that actually save the business a lot of money longitudinally as well? Oh, great question. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head here, which is it actually does save money and it saves lives. And in fact, the origin of that software I talked to you about that Steve Hirsch created when he was with the um, uh, with the Pentagon uh, was designed initially as a economic tool to show the military that they can actually save money by um, reducing fatigue levels. It didn't come out back. It didn't come out. It wasn't invented initially as a as a, a risk mitigation tool. It was invented as an economic tool to show them they could sa- they could save money. And so, yeah, it, it that that's the whole that's the whole purpose of it. And but a lot of it is just quite frankly flat out ignorance on the part of people who get to make these decisions because, um, particularly in competitive industries, they look around going, "I don't want to do anything because." Um, my competitors aren't going to do it and and I'm just going to cost me money and so I'm going to I'm going to lose out. I see that in the trucking industry all the time. The trucking industry across North America works on very small margins and one trucking company is not going to do very much around sleep and fatigue because uh, it costs them money and they have to compete with the guys that aren't doing it. Right? And so you get regulators in there who are trying to regulate it and quite frankly they're doing a re- very poor job of it. They um, as as a regulator myself in the past, you, you try to make things easy for yourself. And so you create these hard, hard boundaries. Say if you cross, it's like speed limits. You cross this boundary, you broke the law, right? And that just doesn't work very well for sleep and fatigue issues because a lot of it involves training. A lot of it involves uh, medic, personal medical issues for people. You know, how do you do sleep screening? Do you do mental health screening? You know, how do you help? How do you help these people? Um, you know, it doesn't matter what schedules you put in. If somebody's got sleep apnea, even if they're to work in day shift, they're at high risk. Right? And so, you know, it really starts with dealing with individuals as human beings and saying, you know, we're going to put you through these stresses of working night shift, which is a fighting against your biology. But let's get you in the best shape we can to do that. And let's minimize the risk as we go along. So let's do sleep screening. Let's give you education. Let's do mental health screening. Let's do some monitoring with you. Let's put some resources in there to help you. They just don't do that. They're not there yet. Yeah. And I think with the resources, it's just simply manpower, you know, or person power, whatever the term is <laughs> these days. And money. But it's, but it, but it's, it's money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's the thing. So when you, again, when I love that phrase and I always butcher the term, but something like, um, plant the seed of a tree under which the shade you'll never know. And the problem is what I see in the fire service, that's all I know as far as, you know, intimately is that person, whether in the city or, or county council, whether they're in, you know, the chief position, they want to look good in that budget year. They want their Christmas bonus or whatever they, you know, they're getting that no one else sees. And so they're not investing long term. Whereas if you simply just invested in your people up front 10 years from now, 
people will be talking about you with with folklore like oh you know jennifer or steve they revolutionized our department and it was a brave choice and actually they were lauded for it at the time but now everyone's loving it because not only are our people so much healthier and the mental health crisis come down and we've got a fitter workforce but now we've got extra budgets to reopen fire stations and buy more engines Right. Yeah. And, and I think some of it is sort of one size doesn't fit all. So every, in my experience, fire stations are, are, um, sort of like almost like different little companies. Um, so in British Columbia, uh, and this is built into the law and it's called the Fire Services Act, the employers can employ firefighters by working them two 10 hour days followed by two 14 hour nights, which has always been the schedule here. Uh, the other alternative is they're allowed to work 24-hour shifts. And now they're starting to go to 24-hour shifts, which is being pushed by a lot of the, uh, the firefighters. And in some fire halls, it's a great idea. And in some, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> right. And so the one, the an example is I've done some work here at our airport here, the YVR airport here, and they have a, their own firefighting groups. They virtually get, don't get called out at night. Like the, the, there's virtually no calls at night. So working 24-hour shifts is great for them because they've got beds. They just sleep at night, right? And it's like working day shift, but you're sleeping there instead of at home. It's a great idea rather than jerking them around with their circadian rhythms, you know, working 10-hour days here and 14-hour nights. It, it, it It's a way better system. But for other fire halls where they get called out a lot because there are a lot of them are first responders in downtown, it's a terrible idea. These guys are awake you know, 24 hours of not sleeping, right? And driving home. And we know that they're a high risk for accidents. In fact, in New Jersey, and if you know this, is a criminal offense to be awake 24 hours and drive. Oh, really? Yeah. So how the hell does that it's, it's called Maggie's. Yeah, good <laughs> question. It's called Maggie's Law. No, no, absolutely. And and it's because they know then if you're awake for 24 hours, you likely have the reaction time of somebody that's 0.1 alcohol. So, so just to bring a solution, because this is the one thing that the sleep medicine world seems to agree with, is you know, we have beds in the station. As you said, the quality of sleep, very poor, because as I always give the analogy, imagine someone holding those, those uh, orchestra symbols above your head and then said, I'm going to smash them in your ear, or I might not, who knows? Um, you're not going to get that deep quality. But if you had an extra 24 hours in between your shifts, so the 24 hour, you know, one day on two days off, which is very poorly labeled, um, 2448, it would be a 2472. So my whole observation is you're not bouncing around from day to night, day to night, which clearly seems to be horrendous because you can see the physical, you know, of our cops and nurses and doctors. But you give these responders one more day, which brings it down to a 42 hour work week. And that's what blows me away is the people in the offices making these decisions go home at 40 hours. But the people that they're telling to stay in the station, as we said, is 48, 56 and beyond. Yep. All economic decisions. Yeah. So right. again, investing in your people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and understanding that, you know, it's like saying, I don't want to spend any money to take the asbestos out of this building. I'll just let these guys work here. Right? You, you don't want to deal, you don't understand the risk. Um, and Or if you do, you don't want to do anything about it. So I want to flip it around completely. We've talked about kind of deficits from sleep deprivation. You work in the uh, the sports world as well, like you said, a lot of the, the the main arenas that everyone's familiar with and all these different sports. 
Talk to me about what you bring to those athletes and what are you seeing as far as the correlation between sleep and then performance and also injury mitigation as well? Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. So the leagues are all different. So in the National Football League, they play now 17 games, not at night, um, once a week. Right. So they have, but in the teams that I've worked with, um, I guess I work for the Seahawks and work with other some East Coast teams as well, is again, it's education. So once you sit down the management and the players and the coaches and say, okay, here's how sleep is affecting your reaction time. Um, when you get back after Monday night football, you fly back to Seattle or wherever you fly back to LA. Why are you getting them up at six in the morning for meetings? Oh, we've always done it that way. Well, don't do it that way. Like <laughs> you have options. So it's so some of those things are 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 easier. Um, in the NBA and in the National Hockey League, they play 82 games, 41 on the road, 41 at home. Um, and they play a lot of back-to-back games. And so we know the players are going to lose sleep in those back-to-back games. So there are things that the team can do and the players can do to to mitigate that. One of the things we did, um, we went through the schedule with the Canucks, for example, every year, and we figured out um, which which of those back-to-back games where they had, were not going to get much sleep because they had to you finish one game at 10, 11 o'clock at night. You have to load up, pack up all your stuff, get on a plane, fly to the next city, get to the hotel, get to sleep, get up and play a game the next day. So one of the things that we did was we worked with the entire team. We worked with the 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 the, um, the PR people. We worked with uh, because the players have to get press interviews after the game. We worked with the players. We worked with uh, the uh, equipment guys, which is the the slow part, having to gather up all this equipment and get it on a plane, get it on a bus, get it to the plane, and get it out. So coordinating all of those kinds of activities in the past, it would be after the game is over, it's often three hours before they're in the air. We got it down to an hour. So it gave the players two extra hours of sleep during, during the, and it made a huge difference, huge difference in their performance. You could see it. And, the, and the, the, even the management said this gave us five extra wins a year right, to do that. So there are um, um, NBA is uh, a bit different, although the schedules are the same. Um, the NBA tends to play the same five, six, seven, eight players all game. Right. So that, that so physically, um, and it, uh, it's it's a, it's just a, it's just a different game, but they have a lot of the 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 same issues. These guys aren't getting to sleep till two or three o'clock in the morning, having to get up and play. Um, the research around um, uh, injuries is kind of interesting. Um, there really isn't. I think intuitively, people think that injury that if if you're sleep deprived as an NBA player, or whatever, there's going to be increased injuries. The problem is. Uh, we know that's true in industry, but uh, we're not sure about sports yet. There's very little research because of uh, they just don't do that kind of research in professional sports. And so we don't really know. People say, yeah, we think there is, but we certainly know in, in, in industry, higher fatigue result, uh, results in higher, um, higher accident risks. Um, there's great studies that done by the railroad industry, airline industry, um, military to show that that's the case. Just not sure how that translates into, into sports yet. Cause it's just certainly different activities. Um, but yeah, so, and, but what the, the, the biggest selling point I think in professional sports is changing your reaction time. So we can tell, um, you know, if you're not sleeping well, you have poor reaction time. 
And we know, um, and my experience in professional sports is that, um, that the players that don't sleep well don't have very long careers. You know, and and so and we and we see that a lot, and we also know that they don't perform very well. I've I've got I studied all twenty three players for seven years, on, and some players obviously rotated out, followed their sleep, looked at their reaction time, fatigue. I can tell you that the the thirty percent worst sleepers on the team were the thirty percent worst players on the team. See, and I think that's so important. Firstly, I think the the injury. What I've seen in our professions is that chronic sleep deprivation, because when you are not only do you have the cognition side and making the mistakes as far as proprioception and where you're literally putting your limbs, but also you grow, you repair when you sleep. So you've got this chronic breakdown. So that, that makes perfect sense that you don't see it as much in the sporting world. But one thing that, again, there's a kind of resistance to accepting is that we are tactical athletes. We're not sporting athletes. We're not doing a certain group of movements to an extremely high level. But especially in the fire service, we're jack of all trades, master of none. But with the law enforcement, and you talk about reaction times, that could literally be you know shooting the right person shooting the wrong person getting your shot off before someone tries to kill you so these are you know these are parameters i think are extremely important to be discussed in the first responder professions absolutely that's why i'd encourage people to read brian villa's research it's really um really great stuff around 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 that but but there's a big difference too between professional athletes and, and first responders and firefighters is recovery if you're a professional athlete, I work. I work with one guy who makes seventeen million dollars a year. He he doesn't have to do the things around the house that it, that we do. He should come home. <laughs> you know, he has help, um, and he and he gets the summers off, and he gets you know lots of days off to re, to recover. Even though I you know they they do a lot of travel, they they live uh, lives of luxury. Right. And they have lots of time to to recover. Where you're a firefighter and looking after a family, and I've looked worked with firefighters who are single moms or single dads, and having to not only try to get their sleep in a profession, but you know juggling their kids back and forth between their acts um, and those kinds of things. So there's a lot a lot of differences between you know the stresses put on by firefighters and than than there is on professional athletes. Yeah, you were literally preaching to the choir because when I first went through my divorce, I was going through paramedic school as well. So I was doing a 24-hour shift, getting off shift, going to sit in the classroom for eight hours, you know, again, getting my son, getting him off to, to school again, then going to do a clinical in a hospital or ride with the local fire department as a paramedic, rinse and repeat. So, I mean, the the chance of recovery while still trying to be a good parent with the emotional trauma of a you know a divorce I would say was probably a little different than, you know, um, a, a sporting superstar. Right. And and that's, I mean, one of the things I, when I talk about when we educate, whether it's firefighters or athletes or whoever, is to understand that poor sleep is not a disease, right? It's a symptom. And it's, it could be a symptom of a lot of different things. In your case, there's, you know, stresses, um, you know, and, and you know, um, those things lead to mental health issues. There's sleep disorders, over 100 different sleep disorders, and people don't even screen for them. So the biggest challenge, I think, around all of this is saying, you know, as an individual, what are the stressors? What is it? If I'm not sleeping well, what's causing it? Well, I want to get... Kind of, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to jump no, step no, on you no, then. No. I want to get to to what you're actually bringing to my community. But, but one thing I want to hit on, because uh, Michael Gervais brought it up, and it was a great question. 
And it's something I've observed in myself. And I've been out the fire service now for four and a half years. And I just went on a round the world kind of research slash fundraising thing with a bunch of special operations people and got to recreate what would be the emotional, physical stress, and then the sleep deprivation circadian rhythm changes that are exposed to a lot of our men and women in uniform. And it put me way back. And it really was very haunting as I was like, my God, that was such a a great way of me seeing how much more acute that felt from a well-rested state. Now I go to sleep every night to what I perceived I was then. So Michael asked you about baseline and can the brain trick you into thinking you're okay when you're actually way below par? And so I want to revisit that question because that's pertinent to so many people listening. That's actually a great question. And the short answer is yes. Um, There's a wonderful research um, out of, uh, again, Washington State University by Hans Van Donegan and others, and there's some similar work done by Belinke and others, is is to show that. So with, basically what they did was put large groups of people into a sleep lab so they could monitor their sleep with, with polysomnography, so brainwave technology. You know exactly what's going on with these people. And every few hours, they had to take what's called a reaction test, simple reaction test. So it's called a PVTs, a psychomotor vigilance task. So a little light shows up and you hit a button. So it, it's, it's, you, you can fake being bad, but you can't fake being good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a reaction test. So they knew how long people slept and how well they slept. And they knew exactly what their reaction time was while they were awake. And so they did a couple of things. One is they just changed how many hours they were allowed to sleep and they could show them exactly that the difference between four, six and eight hours of sleep made a huge difference in their reaction time. But what they did as well is when they took the reaction time, it was a black box in the sense that the person who took the test didn't know what their score was. So they would ask them subjectively, how do you feel? And, and so for the first couple of days, particularly when they, when they lowered the number of sleep hours, again, the first couple of days, the, the subjects would say, you know, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, a little bit tired. But after a couple of days at that level, they said, you know, I feel okay. I feel normal. Right. And this, the term has been referred to is, um, uh, renorming. So your brain renorms and four or six hours sleep feels normal. And I get that all the time, professional athletes, but I feel good. I said, take a reaction test. You know, <laughs> you're not, you know, you know, there's a difference between how you feel and how you can perform. <laughs> and so, you know, you're, you're absolutely right is your brain can trick you into thinking. And we hear that. I say that all the time, people with sleep apnea. So we know they're getting probably less than four hours sleep a night. And, and their brain's foggy. They don't even know it. And then they get a CPAP machine and almost overnight, they're getting eight hours of sleep or seven or eight hours of sleep. And it's like this fog clears out of the brain the way they describe it. So it makes a huge difference in their lives. Kirk Parsley, who's a Navy SEAL turned physician, was talking about um, the sleep deprivation itself can cause uh, almost like a, a lack of... Um, muscularity in the larynx that can then lead to sleep apnea and so when what i've seen in the fire services and i joke about this a lot a lot of our dorms now look like the bar in star wars there's so many hoses and masks around everywhere which is great but i still see that as a band-aid not getting to the root of the problem so what are you seeing as far as because i mean cpaps are obviously huge now in americans is 
is that something that someone is doomed to have the rest of their life? Or can that improved sleep along with weight loss actually get to where they don't need that anymore? Right. So, first of all, one of the things I like to say is that nothing good comes from poor sleep. (laughs) Um, And sleep apnea is one of about 100 different sleep disorders. But it's kind of the poster child for it. And the reason it is, is because somebody invented a CPAP machine and they get to sell them like crazy. Sometimes they overprescribe them because they, quite frankly, and I talk about this in my book, they get kickbacks isn't the right word, but they get a, a, they get a benefit from for, for prescribing it. Um, and so sometimes that's overprescribed and they don't often follow the people. And so there are different causes of sleep apnea. And we're talking about um and so some of them are just jaw structure. Talk to the head of our um, sleep research here out at the University in British Columbia. And he told me that a lot of his patients now are actually middle-aged Asian women because of their jaw structure. And it's their jaw structure as they age that's causing sleep apnea versus, um, which we say in the National Football League as well, obesity, which again, it closes off your throat. Those things can be uh, dealt with. And there are laser treatments that can be dealt So there are many causes of sleep apnea, and some of them are more curable than others, and they don't all need CPAP machines. (laughs) But so with that kind of, um, not vicious circles the wrong way, but but getting to the nucleus of an issue, what I'm seeing is it's kind of like the hypertension drugs. Well, you're going to be on this forever, your psychiatric meds. Well, you know, you're stuck with Velbutrin now. It is what it is. To me, if you are able to address someone's poor sleep, whatever, and the the CPAP happens to work, um, I would hope there'll be a conversation just like with prescription medication. The goal is to get you off this in X amount of months, a year, whatever it is. So, you know, talk to me about the actual application. What are some of the things that people can do once they start sleeping better to improve the chances of not needing to be strapped to a machine when they go to bed anymore? Right. And so that's having a clear understanding of why you're wearing it to begin with, right? And what what was causing your sleep apnea. And so you can go from there. Certainly, if, you know, uh, weight loss, um, you know, anything that you can do to um, improve your health, proper diet, proper exercise. Um, but, I, but I think you're right. Once people set, get on a regime, whether it's a CPAP machine or whatever it is, they tend not to move from it. And part of it is, at least in Canada as well, is we have very few uh, sleep physicians, sleep specialists, very difficult to get to see them. And so once you're on a regime, you're basically left alone. Most general practitioners across North America have very little sleep uh, experience or education. And so what they do is they give you a little pill to take. Right or or prescribe a sleep CPAP machine or send you over to get a um, uh, uh, um, polysomnography done. Right, get some PSG to see what's causing that. And I've seen all, tons and tons of those reports. And a lot of these. So when when and I talk about this in my book. So when sleep became a thing in the '60s and '70s, right? People said so. These sleep clinics popped up all over North America. And they weren't regulated. And so the pulmonologists got, jumped in there. And a lot of them, basically what they prescribe is CPAP machines. All they're doing is looking for sleep apnea when there's like 90 other things, including mental health stuff. So it's very difficult to find physicians that are able to look more holistically at what's going on with your sleep. 
So you're right. Once you get on a regime, you go, oh, you got sleep apnea. Here, have this machine. We see in 30 years, right? And so there really isn't that kind of follow-up that you do sometimes see with drugs. Well, it's, I've, I've just when we were talking and you, you were saying exactly that, what kept resonating in my mind is I haven't met a single person that came back from a sleep study that said anything other than, oh, they said I stopped breathing 2,500 times. That was the problem. And you're looking at them going, well, Brian, you're also 70 pounds overweight and you drink Mountain Dew 17 times a day and you know, you've got all these other things going on. I don't think that is the thing. You know, If that was even truly what you were saying, because some of these apneic periods i mean did you breathe at all <laughs> did you have one breath the whole hour because these numbers you're giving me are yep. pretty pretty crazy so that's why i question as you said some of the science is it you know are they being given the holistic picture and i heard you talk about my with this with michael and this is something i've observed with with wellness in general when i studied you know to be a paramedic when i was doing my exercise physiology in college we broke down the body into the renal system, respiratory, cardiac, et cetera. And that's, I think, how we've devolved in medicine. We forget that we are part of this beautiful interactive physiology and nothing is a standalone. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I, again, I talk about this in my book is that what's happened in the evolution of medicine, particularly in the Western world, is it's become specialized. So there are eye doctors and ear doctors and heart doctors and, you know, feet doctors and hand doctors. But we're not a, humans are not a bunch of jigsaw puzzles all taped together. We're an integrated system and one part affects the other. Right? So one of the reasons I'm a huge fan is one of the reasons I spent um, a few years working with Dr. Mar- uh, Maurice Ohayan at Stanford. He runs the, the Stanford Sleep Epidemiology Research Center. And he has artificial intelligence con- systems that... Um, he he had this out you know ten years before AI was a, even a thing, and he's used and it's very and I I just absolutely in love with the program. You can talk you'll talk to this computer for half an hour, forty five minutes, and it can diagnose sleep disorders, mental health issues, organic diseases, all based on symptomology. So what he told me was when you go see your doctor, they they basically doing the same thing. So they're trying to figure out what your symptoms are. They pretty much know what's going on. They send you for tests to try to confirm it. And this, this computer program is highly, highly accurate. And it's amazing because it, it dies. It's, it says, um, you know, and, and which I went through it. So I have what's called positional sleep apnea. So, which means I, I can't sleep on my back. If I do, I, and I become, I, and I, then I wake up with, with sleep apnea, but I still have to sleep on my side. So there's those kinds of uh, different forms. And it'll also diagnose uh, depression, um, ADHD, whatever you have, any mental health. It, it gives you a picture of what's going on totally within, within your system. And he's used it for epidemiological studies all over the world. And he's a, you know, longtime professor at Stanford University. This guy is a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist, neurologist, and he has PhDs in biology, mathematics, and computer science. Oh, so he struggled in school then. Yeah, he's, he's a <laughs> slow learner. But putting these things together, and but again, you know, and I, I've talked to him. I said, why can't, why can't individuals? And he, he, he's allowed me to access this for athletes, individual athletes. Um, which has been a, a a great lifesaver for them because we can tell right away like what's going on with with some high level athletes is is uh, the medical profession are scared to death of him because and that system because it takes away it essentially you can get on the computer and and 
and get diagnosed and you don't need to jump and see 10 different specialists. And so the technology is, is evolving and our society will change. But um, once you, and my view of this is that a lot of these things, including the medical profession are engaged in um, uh, their businesses, right? And, and so they have huge economic interest in not changing very much. So you have these sleep labs that prescribe um, uh, CPAP machines. They're not going to change, right? You can get diagnosed. His system will diagnose your sleep apnea in 20 minutes talking to the computer, which is more accurate than the current systems are using for a few hundred dollars instead of a few thousand dollars. But, but again, the, it's, it's, it's all economics. And unfortunately, in the medical profession, is really gotten entrenched into old, older technology. That's amazing because I mean that's what we are really is we we're trying to critically think by regurgitating things that we've learned. But rather than being threatened by that, what a use! What an incredible tool that we could use alongside the human diagnosis and actually allow us to, for for example, the physicians to actually spend the time with the patient. Because this is the problem I see. I mean, we we demonize medicine a little bit. And obviously, there's elements of medicine that is incredibly successful. I mean, trauma surgery and, you know, pre-hospital medicine. And there's drugs that work phenomenally well to save lives every single day. But our doctors get this minute window with these people. So they end up being this kind of prescription pad. So imagine if we could combine the kind of the factual critical thinking element through AI with the human... Um, bedside manner element of the doctors of yesteryear again, we could maybe kind of revolutionize medicine rather than be threatened by it. No, absolutely. And so what happens when you go to see your GP, they have to not only figure out what's going on with you, diagnose you, and then prescribe some treatment. But one of the things we experimented with a bit at Stanford was where doctors would ask their patients to go online, give them some, we gave them some codes, they could go on they go through that system. So when they showed up at the doctor, the doctor already knew what was wrong with the guy or woman, right? They already knew the diagnosis and say, so would ask a few questions to confirm it, but then they could spend their time on treatment. Love it. Yeah. I've just been exposed to, I've been told literally, James, if you don't get into AI right now, a year from now, you're going to be left in the dust. So I just bought a program um, <laughs> to do to help with this side, you know, but that is the future. And obviously, when we hear of AI, we see creepy robots and all that kind of stuff. But there's so many applications where it can collate all the wisdom, hopefully ancient wisdom as well, and be an adjunct to the human side, not a replacement for it. Right. And part of it is breaking down the long time barriers, particularly in the medical profession, about who can do what. Right. And so we're starting to see because of, you know, uh, and certainly in Canada, we have, uh, um, uh, we don't have enough physicians. And so they're getting nurses to do some of the work that doctors used to do, where they're doing, we're getting um, uh, pharmacists to do some of the work that doctors used to do. So they're slowly starting to break down some of these these you know, artificial barriers where everybody, you know, within their profession, they can only do certain things. So now in certainly in British Columbia, um, uh, pharmacists can prescribe certain drugs by themselves. I mean, you don't have to go see a doctor because you can't find doctor <laughs> either around. So it, it's, it's, it's coming. It's, it's slow. Um, and part of it is, and one of the fear in the medical profession, and I have a little bit of this fear as well, people who self-diagnose, 
without getting a, a you know sort of an outside opinion. And that's one of the things that I think the folks at Stanford were worried about too. You don't want to go through the system and have a computer tell you you're bipolar. Um, you know, uh, you, you you need a um, you need some counseling. You need some some guidance. And you know, so if you have sort of self diagnosis without treatment, it's it can be a disaster. Yeah, well, we see that as paramedics. It's called WebMD. Yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> people yeah. tell us they're dying Google. from god knows yeah. whatever yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 all right well then you talked about you know the the presentation and the the knowledge that you bring to the first responder profession so talk to me about what people can find in the book inconvenient sleep and then what are some of the the pillars that you discuss to the men and women in uniform uh, well, the the book itself was uh, really written out of my frustration, and I wrote I co-wrote it with my daughter, who's a sports lawyer um, uh, and former athlete. It is is really out of frustration, uh, uh, trying to give some baseline data and some understanding to um, coaches and to athletes. Um, you know, we see people quoting all kinds of um, uh, research, and they have no idea that the research is just complete crap. Right. You know, it was, oh, we should use these cold water baths. Well, you know, it was done on, you know, five rugby players in Brazil 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing that, that sleep research has exploded and it's not, not all of it is good. So we try to give them some guidelines around how to interpret research and how to, you know, and, and what works and what, and what hasn't worked, um, you know, in our experience. And again, education. In education by itself, one of the, the um, analysis that we are analogies that we use with professional athletes is um, you can go in, I can go in and talk to you about sleep, but that's like me going in and talk to you about getting into shape and then walking away. So here's all the great things you need to get. It doesn't work with athletes, right? You need to provide equipment, you need to provide uh, hands on training, you need to provide um, some goals. You need to help them monitor it, right? If you want to get into shape, you can do that. But with sleep, basically walk in and say, yeah, you need to get more sleep. Here's how you do it. And you walk away, right? So I try to say you need to start treating sleep like you treat physical education, right? Getting into shape. And, 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 and you know, and that goes to the same thing about habits. So if you're a professional athlete, you work out for the most part year round, right? And we see, we see they don't get, we see that they don't always get into the same kind of good sleep lifestyle habits year round. Right. So we're trying to say, you know, you want to make yourself a, a good athlete, you know, and, and, and a sustainable career is you need to treat your sleep habits exactly like you treat your physical conditioning habits. Um, so that part of it, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the second part of your question, um, around, um, the pillars around, around, um, first responders in the military. And it really comes down to exactly the same thing, right? It's treating uh, sleep not as an adjunct thing, but as a as a as a a, a primary component of um, our our health and mental our health safety and, and mental health. Right? And to get into the kinds of habits, I call it sleep resilience. Um, I have this argument all the time with other people who do what I do in the profession, and they call what's called sleep banking. So they say to professional athletes and Olympic athletes, you need to, before a, a big event, you need to bank sleep. Well, you can't bank sleep, right? You well, can't we're all bank, operating on a deficit anyway, so we ain't banking anything. We're still trying to catch it, up. <laughs> I, 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 no, no, but that's exactly right. So they start with the premise that you you don't get enough sleep and they're saying, we're going to accept that. We're not going to try to encourage you to constantly get good sleep. We're just going to accept your lifestyle or whatever's going on. 
And so you need to just really focus in on trying to get up, you know, catching up on your sleep a week before an event. My argument is you're, you're tackling the problem the wrong way. You need to start treating sleep, uh, you know, if you want sleep resilience so that, you know, even if you're anxious the night before a game, or you miss some sleep, it's not going to overly affect your performance. It's much like if you're a um, um, professional athlete and you have to fly to a game and you miss a, you miss a workout, it's not, going to, it's not going to hurt your career that much, right? And so we need to treat start treating sleep as exactly the same way as a really important um, component of our of our health, you know, health, safety, and well being. And it's just not getting there yet. There's all of these barriers, whether they're economic barriers or historical barriers. I mean, all of the schedule, particularly for firefighters and police officers, all of that grew up way before sleep research came out. So it's, 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 for me, it's, it's about education, right? Getting people on the same page and getting them to understand the issues. So speaking of that, the term sleep hygiene obviously comes up a lot. Talk to me about light, sound, and temperature, uh, and other any other areas that an individual can control, as well as hopefully being part of the fight to improve their work week, which is the other side. So you've got the environment they can't control at the moment. What can they control in their fire station and when they get home? Right. So, yeah, you can Google sleep hygiene. There's a million things it tells you to do. Most of them, I, I think, are a little questionable. Are not certainly not based on science. They're based on theory. Um, one thing that is based on science is uh, controlling noise and controlling light and, and comfort, you know, comfortable bed. For me, my experience is, and is, um, call, Dr. Caldwell from the U.S. Air Force did the same thing. It's about darkness. Because if you're trying to sleep any anywhere, because we're diurnal animals, we're supposed to be sleeping while it's dark out. And so managing darkness is probably the most important thing you can do. So if you wake up in the night, it's dark and go back to sleep, you're not getting focused in on other light issues. And so I said to him, well, what do you mean by dark? Like how dark should dark be? He says, if you can hold your hand a foot away from your face and you can still see your hand, it's not dark enough. So I, and for me, it's made a huge difference. Getting blackout blinds into my bedroom is huge. So uh, for me, sleep hygiene is um, managing your lifestyle. So you give yourself the opportunity to get the sleep you need. It's like scheduling anything in your life, whether it's holidays, schedule your sleep and have a, have a, have a comfortable environment and a very dark and quiet environment. So when I was listening to you talk about this with Michael, again, the first thought is, well, what about stars, moon, etc. So talk to me about the different types of light, because when we reverse engineer to us a few hundred years ago, there probably would have been light coming in, but it's a different kind of light, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think they even know. I, I, I I mean, humans got into caves and shelters pretty early <laughs> to sleep out under the stars. Um, but it is definitely artificial light now is, 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 is different. And certainly we know now in the different spectrum of light that it's actually the blue light that's, that's so, and the reason you want to avoid light, part of it is, is not just to, that it wakes your brain up is that um, it has to do with the production of melatonin. So when it's dark out, your your brain produces melatonin that helps you fall asleep and stay asleep. And when it's light out, it 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 um, reduces the amount of melatonin that's being produced. So there's you know there's the kind of a, a, a awareness of you know if you wake up and it's light and you kind of 
trying to wake up and see what's going on kind of thing. But it's also the hormonal thing with, with melatonin. So you talked about sound, you talked about light, and I've, I've got like tape over my fire, you know, um, smoke detector on the roof. And actually, I'm, I'm going to buy blackout blinds, but I want to get the ones. There's actually a curtain rail that you can automate because I want to wake up with a natural light. So I don't want to be, you know, oversleeping and groggy as hell. Um, but the one other thing that I hear a lot is the temperature. And, you know, they say about 67 each side, which ob- um, observationally, I feel is is also a factor for me personally, because if it's any warmer than that, I start to feel warm in my bed and not sleep as well. Yeah, I think you hit it hit the nail on the head there as well, is is that sleep is very personalized. Right? And so, you know, all of these sort of temperature and comfort ranges and things around sleep are very, very personalized. And, you know, I'd, some people sleep on a soft bed. Some people need a hard bed. Some people need this temperature. So it, it's it's about, you know, body awareness, really understanding what you need for your body. Now, you touched on melatonin. I just want to dip into the subject and then go to some closing questions. But um, Kurt Parsi, who I talked about before, he's got an excellent sleep remedy that he used to get a lot of his seals off um, Ambien. At the time, this was, uh, I think he was, he was in pre 9-11. So I think he was probably doing this post 9-11, but he realized how many were on, I'm using air quotes, sleep medicines. Um, and so was able to use this, but this is a, a cocktail of different things, a very small amount of melatonin, tryptophan, vitamin D, magnesium, and it works incredibly well. I'm, I'm really truly amazed how well this works. Not something I want to take all the time, but if, for example, I come off a shift and it's been a rough shift and I kind of want to reset, it's a great, great um, supplement to aid my sleep. I see a lot of melatonin supplements with a huge amount of melatonin out there. And I also see a big misunderstanding of sleep aids and that actually they make you unconscious. You're not getting a deep you know, quality sleep from those. So what have you seen through your eyes in the world of you know sleep aids? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, people want to get in our society. Everybody wants a quick fix. Give me a pill. <laughs> make a better wave of magic one. Um, so there are different kinds of um, uh, sleep aids. I can obviously send you a link that my friends in Australia have a great blog on, uh, around that. But generally there are two kinds of uh, um, sleeping pills. Ones that put you to sleep, like Zoplicon and Ambien, but then you have to sleep on your own. And then there's others that actually put you to sleep and keep you unconscious for longer periods of time. And those ones are make you groggy and um, you know they can become addictive. Um, melatonin is interesting. So melatonin is a natural hormone that your, your body produces. And so somebody came up with the idea, well, let's just keep adding more heart, more melatonin and that'll, that'll be better. Okay. Um, and there are about 3000 papers written on melatonin and the jury's still out about whether it works or doesn't work. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's the only hormone that's unregulated in North America. So to get melatonin in Europe and the EU, you and we, again, we talk about this in my book, you you have to get a, see a doctor, get a prescription. And so the drug, the melatonin is regulated there. So they know exactly how much melatonin you're getting and how much is in each pill. North America, it's a supplement, food supplement. And so it's completely unregulated. And so people just buy them off the shelf. And there's a, a great research paper where they went and collected all of the melatonin supplements and actually tested them. And some of them had no melatonin. Some had way more than they said. Um, and and was, I've forgotten the exact number, but I think like 70% of the ones did not have 
the, the amount that they said it had. And some of them even had some more dangerous chemicals in them. So it's a completely unregulated industry. Again, I, I talk about that in my book, which in quote the research in that is, uh, uh, so I'm always reluctant to to recommend those kinds of things to people. My view is, if it works for you, even if it's a placebo, if it works for you, do it. <laughs> uh, so, but but I, I I I I you know because we're in a society where you think you can pop a pill make pill make you better. Um, people tend to gravitate to those kinds of things. But um, again, because sleep is so individual, if it works for you, do it. I think it was uh, Benadryl, if I'm not mistaken, or PM. Um, Doc was talking about when they put the side-by-side -side comparison between shift workers that are chronically sleep-deprived and people that used Benadryl as a sleep aid, the actual lifespan was the same because there was this misunderstanding that you were sleeping where you weren't actually getting sleep. And so I think that's a, a really important kind of observation. You talked about the wearable that you ended up um, creating. I just want to hit this topic quickly as well. I see a lot of claims and people really believing, oh, I had this much REM sleep, I had this much. And I had, for example, Professor, Rus Professor Russell Foster, who's one of the, again. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I caught, caught, caught him in my back. He's good. Research. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm an amazing, amazing man. And <laughs> yeah. so you hear about, you know, even the, the, you know, what we think of as the layman as the gold standard of like an EEG or something. And then you're like, no, actually, it's, it's really not great science. And that's, that's things stuck to your head. So now you're wearing a ring or a watch and saying that you've got this diverse, you know, rich information about your sleep. So if you wouldn't mind, educate us on, you know, the, the landscape that is a reliable, wearable and, and what can it actually tell someone? Sure. A great question. So to begin with, sleep is a process that goes on in your brain. Okay. It doesn't go on in your wrist. <laughs> and so the question is, so how do you, how does it know whether you're sleeping or not? Because it's, it's, it's a process that goes on in your brain, not on your wrist. And so it's based on um, motion. And so most, virtually all of these have uh, accelerometers in them, much like your iPhone, you twist it, it'll, it'll twirl around and it measures motion in your wrist. And so in, I think it was in the late 70s, um, uh, Cole Kripke, two researchers in California, created this algorithm where they were able to show that based on wrist motion, we could tell whether you're awake or likely awake or likely asleep. So that's, and it's, it's, it's open source stuff. It's called the Cole Kripke algorithm. And I know Daniel Krupke, I interviewed him for my book. He's a really great retired guy, University of California, San Diego. And I asked him about the, the sleep watches. He goes, basically, I said, they're, they're in a polite way, he said they're crap. <laughs> so what's happening in the sleep industry is um, what, what these things can actually measure is they're pretty good, really like 90% pretty good at telling you whether you're awake or whether you're asleep. But that's all it can really tell you. Right. And so I liken them to a bathroom scale, right? You stand on the bathroom scale, says you weigh 180 pounds. So what? Is that good? Is it bad? Is it right? It's just a number, right? Doesn't tell you, you know, to lose weight, doesn't tell you to gain weight. It doesn't, doesn't tell you anything. It just tells you a number. You have to individualize it. But what's happening in the, in the sleep watch industry is once you sold a watch to somebody and they, or a bathroom scale, um, they measure themselves. They're not going to buy any more from you only need one and so they started to create more and more bling 
to make it more interesting. And so what they said, no, we can tell what sleep stage you're at. And they're guessing. Um, and it's not very accurate. But what I say to people, even if it's accurate, what are you going to do with the information? You're going to go to bed at night and go, yeah, I, I think I'm going to get more REM sleep tonight. It doesn't work that way. It's useless information. And so I, 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 athletes come to me all the time with this information. What do I do? I said, take your watch off to begin with. Like, or don't even look at it for a week. It's not the day-to-day thing. It's week to week, month to month. Look at the patterns. And re- you really can only focus on is um, bathroom scale information. How much do I weigh? You don't going to jump on the bathroom scale every day and worry about how much weight you're losing, right? Maybe every week or every couple of weeks, if that's what you're trying to do. Um, and it's the same with sleep watches. All it does is create anxiety. That They're good at measuring whether you're awake or whether you're asleep. Great stuff. But everything else is just bling trying to get you to buy stuff well i think for my community as we said especially when there's that loss of perception of how tired you really are the hrv which obviously now you're talking about taking a pulse so that would be an accurate measurement i totally understand that so if you understand what hrv is in the application and should you train hard today should you have a a light day i totally get that but like you said people become obsessed and i've had people you know oh, i was supposed to have got this but i feel like shit well, there we go. The ultimate metric still, uh, from what I understand, the sleep medicine world is, do you feel tired? That's really your true, you know, metric and you do not need wearables for that specific thing. Yeah. The, the wearable technology just hasn't evolved again, much like melatonin. It's an unregulated industry. These are all sold as, um, gadgets, cracker jack toys. Right? They're fancy, but they're not sold as medical devices. Because if they're sold as medical devices, they have to go through um, FDA. They have to actually do testing to show that it it'll do what it says it does. <laughs> yeah, but even them, how many, how much litigation has happened after they've been approved yeah. too? So. Well, no, no, no. I, I, I no, I, I agree with you. And so, I mean, I tell athletes like, don't pay attention to the details on this. Um, you know, why are you wearing this? You know, what what is it that you want to know? Right? You want to know week to week month to month, how well you're sleeping. You don't, you don't need to measure this every day, right? Get into a schedule, right? Organize your sleep in a way that, okay, okay um, you schedule it. You know, I'm, I, I need to get sleep. I need to get seven hours or whatever, eight hours of sleep. Let's go. I need to be in, in bed by 10 o'clock. I'm asleep by 11. I get up at six or seven o'clock in the morning. Then don't worry about it. <clears throat> Um, you know, the rest is just um, I, it just fluff as far as I'm concerned. I don't think. And, and, and in fact, for some professional athletes, it actually causes way, way more anxiety than they need. They need to go. They need to go through. So, yeah, I don't I don't recommend that. But one of the things we did in the watch that I, I created was uh, we only looked at uh, when you sleep, you know, when you're awake, when you're asleep. So you only get that as a metric. Um, we can tell how many times you woke up in the night and for how long. That's pretty normal. You can do that. But what we did was we melded that technology with the Air Force technology that could predict your reaction time. So um, and you can get some of that with HRV if you really know what you're doing, but it's really basically the same thing. You can you can tell, you can say, um, and, and we know from a lot of the research in um, uh done by the U.S. government, particularly FRA and others, is we can tell where those limits are. We can tell, and you can tell yourself, I'm about to hit the wall here. 
right? And I'm at a high risk of an accident. So that's the technology that we that we built, and that's how it's being used today. But the rest of the stuff about REM sleep and deep sleep is just is is just marketing. So one more area that I should have asked you earlier, and I'll make sure I squeeze it in: the impact of caffeine on sleep and the impact of alcohol, because I think it is probably the most widely used decompressor, even though ultimately biologically having the reverse effect. But so many of us unwind with alcohol. And then I've, you know, I've become more and more aware of the detrimental element on my sleep personally, if I drink the night before. Right. So both have good and bad things. Right. I mean, alcohol relaxes you. Right. Um, And so there's some good, good sides to it. Um, The problem is, um, if you rely on it to fall asleep, you, the quality of your sleep, and you know this from polysomnography, is your um, sleep architecture, it messes up your sleep architecture. So you don't actually get the restful sleep you need to get. So that's the, the good and the bad of alcohol. And the same with caffeine. Caffeine is, is, is great, keeps you awake, keeps you alert. Um, but again, if you take it too close to when you need to go to sleep, you're not going to fall asleep. Same with napping. Napping is good. Napping is sleep. But if you nap too close to when you're you're meant to fall asleep, you're not going to fall asleep. So it really screws your schedule up. So you need to look at whether it's alcohol or napping or caffeine, look at it strategically. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Yeah, we, we know that we're not sleeping at work. But and, you know, you might even try and kind of own some of the other areas and be aware of it. But having those couple of glasses of wine or, you know, whatever it is, understanding that that's just sabotaged your opportunity for getting the best quality sleep. Now, it's a really hard seesaw that you're on because, you know, you're exhausted, you know, so then you drink coffee and then you're kind of wired. So then you drink some alcohol to wind yourself down and then now, boom, you're back on shift again. And, you know, so it's it's, it's, a, it's a vicious circle exactly that I saw in myself. So it's a, an important observation. All right. Well, then your book is called Inconvenient Sleep. Um, firstly, before we go to, to the closing questions, where can people find your book? Uh, Amazon, anywhere, anywhere online books are sold. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. So the first of the closing questions, are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, be honest, I, 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 we're dealing with sleep and fatigue issues. Uh, I, I spend most of my time actually reading research papers rather than rather than books. Um, I actually haven't found any really, that's one of the reasons we wrote the book. I haven't found any really good books around that. I think um, uh, podcasts like yours and blogs, there are a few really good people around. I mean, yours, I mean, um, Michael Chervais has a a, a broader kind of view of things and stuff. Um, uh, Ian Dunnikin out of Australia, he's got a great, great podcast, uh, virtually all about sleep, sleep and fatigue. Um, I've worked with him pretty extensively. Um, brilliant guy, very funny Irishman. Um, moved to Australia, so you can't understand a word he says. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, brilliant. So I, I would recommend, particularly because things happen so fast and are so new in our society. Time it gets, time it gets into a book, it's it's outdated almost. Right? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So thank you. Um, well, the next question: What about a, a film and or a documentary that you love? Oh boy, films. Uh, think about that. I don't watch that many movies anymore. Um, I, I think I'd probably date myself because it's really kind of older, older ones. I like I like movies that d- d- follow people's lives. 
right? And there's there's just so many of them. I um, oh boy, trying. I'll probably pass on that because my my brain's mush at this point. But um, because I actually don't watch that very many movies. I'm I'm a sports and I watch a lot of blogs. I love I love watching cooking shows. Oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, I like the Jamie Oliver stuff. There's a bunch of other ones around. I it's, I, I I I like to cook. I'm a chemist by with training, so it's like chemistry experiment. <laughs> and so I find that relaxing learning you know, learning all these different techniques to cook. Jamie is someone I still want to get on. I got to figure out how to you know connect the dots and get to to him. But what he did in the UK and what he tried to do in the US with the food in our schools is a story I think that needs to be heard. You know, it was it was told a few years ago, but it needs to be reheard, especially after COVID. Right, and and I think that's one of the things I I like I like his style. I like the diversity of the cooking, but I like that he has this sort of. Um, uh, educational aspect to what he's doing and he wants to help move society forward in, in terms of nutrition right and, and what works and what doesn't work and how easy it is to actually cook good nutritional food you know and i i'm, I'm a big fan of people and ian's one of these and, and others a big fan of doing the same with sleep right and people like you right let's let's you know let's educate society let's educate people um if you have an educated group they make smarter decisions yeah, absolutely. 100%. Well, speaking of an educated group, that was a good segue. Is there a person or other people that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Absolutely. I, I talked to John Caldwell. Um, he's sort of semi-retired. He's in, a, he's in Florida, actually, last I heard. Um, and also, I, Ian Dunnikin is great. He, he's done. He's an amazing character. Um, I would try to get, I mean, if you could get anybody from Washington state university, um, I'll get the names for you. The, the guys that have taken over, particularly the police research. I think this, it's really, really good stuff there. Um, so let me, I'll, I can, I'll email that to you and you can pass it on to your, your, uh, your audience if you like, but yeah, no, there's the folks at Washington state university that do the research for first responders is pretty amazing. Brilliant. I'd appreciate that. Thank you so much. And then I guess I need to connect with Brian Villa as well. Yeah, yeah. No, Brian's retired. It's hard to get a hold of, and he, so he's had a few health issues, and so he's he's retired. But he the 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 these are the people that have worked with him and continuing the research. But Brian's books are are brilliant, and his research is brilliant. So okay, fantastic. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you specifically, what do you do to decompress? Uh, good question. I I walk a lot. I mean, I'm older. I'm. 70 years old <laughs> you don't so look 70 by I, the way for everyone that can't see you right now if you look about yeah, oh God, late 60, 50s like, no yeah, yeah. um i walk a lot i try to work out ride a bike um i fish I, I i we have a little little boat and i go out and i catch crabs and prawns and putts around in the ocean and, and you know and, and try to be part of the the in, in, instead of kind of being um, sort of focused in on my new details around my life or um, my work. You know, I try to get out, be in nature. It makes a huge difference. Do you find yourself going full circle back to the the farm life that you grew up as a kid? Uh, yeah, just growing up up north and, you know, being out in nature and looking up at the sky and seeing, seeing how huge the universe is, and, you know, and what a wonderful life we have here. I couldn't agree more. There's so much kind of myopic um, focus on things that really 
I mean, they mean things to certain people, but I mean, as, as a species, there's so many other things we can be more passionate about and move the needle forward and physical and mental health. So before we let you go, where can people find you if they want to reach out or follow you online? Um, I have a, a LinkedIn and I have um, um, Twitter. Um, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but I have, I have Twitter. Um, I have email. I have cell phone number. So I'm, I'll pass that. You have that and, and uh, you're welcome to pass it on to anybody that wants to contact me. I'm happy to chat with them. Beautiful. Well, Pat, I want to say thank you so much. We've gone all over the place, you know, from <laughs> from litigation and asbestos to sleep and first responders, but it's been an amazing conversation. I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime.